out, and you can start making your way to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We'll be actually in chapters 30 and 31, so a fair amount of text in front of us. Uh, but as you're making your way to Genesis chapter 30, uh, I want you to think here for a moment. When's the last time that you moved? Just think about moving here for a moment, and then as you think about that, uh, I want you to consider how many times in your life have you moved? Uh, and I was intrigued, so I went and did uh, some research, and by research, I mean about three minutes on Google. Okay, so here it is. The average American moves 11.7 times in their life. Now, for some of you, you're like, that's a lot. Others of you are like, rookies. What is wrong with the rest of our country? Now, but the point being that as a people, we're accustomed to moving. Uh, and so there'll be aspects of this passage that'll be quite familiar to us because this text details Jacob's desire and eventual move or, or, or be the beginning of the move back to the promised land. In fact, what God's word is going to lead us to is this idea right here, that God moves his people to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his purposes. Let me say that again, that God moves his people to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes, that God is the active agent in moving his people. That's what we're going to see here this morning. And as you think about moving, right now, now in the passage, this is going to be a physical relocation for us by way of application. Maybe that also applies to you. Maybe it's, uh, uh, it's a, a spiritual move. Maybe it's some kind of relational move. Uh, maybe there's a professional move. It could be applied in a variety of of ways, though in Jacob's case, he is going to begin uh, his trek back to the promised land. So before we go any further, we're going to pause, we're going to pray, and we're going to get into God's Word. Join me uh, as we pray. Father, we do uh, thank you for your Word, uh, God, for ways in which your Word will be sharp or direct, uh, God, that we would receive it, uh, understanding that it's for our good in ways uh, that your Word maybe will uh, convict or, 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 or reveal sin in our lives. Would we not shy away from it? Uh, but God, would we thank you for the gracious gift uh, that you give to us uh, to, to respond to that. God, in the ways that your word will encourage or challenge us, would we receive that, hear that, and respond uh, to that? God, as always, we want to pray for the church in the area this morning. God, praying for Cedar, Sings, uh, Cedar Springs Church and for Pastor Grant Blankenship. God, we're uh, asking that you'd be moving and working in their lives uh, and in that body of believers in the same way that you would uh, move and work within us. And so God, come and have your way. Come and accomplish your purposes. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Moved by God. Moved by God. And again, this idea that God moves his people to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his purposes. Um, and as I've already said, we're looking at a large section. There, there's a, a chapter and a half that's in front of us um, and so in an effort to help give us some handles of what's going on in the text, let me just have you look briefly at the bookends of the text. So in verse 25 and 26 of chapter 30, right, where Jacob is going to come to Laban asking him to send him away so that he can go back to the promised land. And then if you look at the very end uh, of 31 verse 55, 
that uh, Laban's going to arise, he's going to kiss his grandchildren, and he's going to return to his land. Uh, and in practice, he is also sending Jacob and the rest of Jacob's family on to the promised land. And so the, the, the entirety of the narrative is bookended by this departure, this move um, of Jacob. But it is a move that is being directed by God, or he is being moved by God. And so with that in mind, uh, let's get into this uh, three distinct aspects of being moved by God that will emerge uh, in the passage here this morning. Here's the first. When we look at the rest of chapter 30, uh, verses 25 to 43, just make note of this, that God is the source of all blessing. That God is the source of all blessing. That God has made provision for Jacob to be able to now go back to the promised land. And we see this showing up in a few ways. Uh, the first is this, is that as people, we should identify God's hand in all blessing. That we identify God's hand in all blessing. Look at your Bibles, verse 27 and following says this, right? After Jacob has asked, send me away that I can go to my own home and my own country. <clears throat> Here's Laban's response in verse 27. If I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock have, has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? And you start looking at this passage, what, what, what emerges immediately is everybody involved understands that the blessing that they're the recipients of have all come from God. Right? Laban goes, Jacob, I, I get that you've been the channel or the conduit, but God is the source. And Jacob affirms that in verse 30 when he's like, yeah, it's the Lord who has blessed you and I. Both are identifying God as the source of blessing. It is the hand of God that has produced this blessing for the people of God. And loved ones, here's the question I think for each and every one of us this morning to consider in our own lives is can you identify God's blessing in your life? Can you see it? Right? Are, are you looking for it? Um, are, are, do, do, you, do you notice the different ways that God has blessed you, provided for you, granted you what you need? And, and maybe you're like, how would I know that I'm seeing it? Well, it's actually quite simple. How often are you thanking God for what he's blessed you with, right? Is that frequent? Is that regular? Is it occasional? Or are you like, I never even thought to thank God what he's given to me, right? As people, we want to be quick um, to identify God's hand of blessing, but we also want to be quick to thank God for his hand of blessing. But before we move on, I th there is one other item here that, that I think comes to us by way of a warning uh, through Laban. And, and when you look at Laban, here's what we're going to see, and it's going to unfold over the rest of the passage, but we'll, we'll just deal with it now. With Laban, Laban desires the blessings of God, but he does not desire the person of God, right? He's happy to receive whatever it is that God will give to him, but he's not really interested in God himself, and as you look at Laban, right, that's certainly a warning to us that we would not fall into that same trap. But, but here's the other, um, maybe the other side of the coin, if you will, with what's going on with him, is that for Laban, right, he wrongly mistakes proximity to God as the same as being in a right standing with God. Right? He's conflated those two things. Because I'm near to God and I'm reaping the blessings of God, therefore I must somehow be right with God. And he actually allows his proximity to God to, to obscure um, his, his need 
for God. And I say this because, loved ones, there's an identical warning that comes to you and I in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 6, where the author of Hebrews warns each and every one of us, right, that we would, that we would not view the peripheral benefits and blessings of God as the same as having a life that's fully yielded and submitted to God, right? So heed the warning so that you're not consumed by the blessing, and in the process, you miss the giver and the source of the blessing. So let me just be really direct with this. Believer, are you treasuring Christ? Is he your absolute joy? Or if the truth were known, do you treasure the blessings and the benefits that come with Christ more than Christ himself? For those of you who are non-believers, what you have to understand is that the greatest blessing that you could receive is God himself. And so more than the blessings, more than the benefits, more than the peripheral things that come with, with, with being a part of the family of God, that God himself, that Christ himself is the treasure and he is the one that we're to pursue. God help us that we would identify God's hand in all our blessing, which leads then to Jacob's response. We see that here in verses 31 to 33. And we see two aspects of his response that, that also are applicable for us, that we respond with generosity and honesty to God's blessing. So Jacob is asked by Laban, uh, he says, name your wages, back in verse 28. And so here's his proposal, starting in verse 31. He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this for me, I'll again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it uh, every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. And now here's his motivation for this. Verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Right? So, so he's saying, just give me the speckled and give me the spotted. Now, a couple things you should know that, that is insightful to what's going on here. First of all, for, for a shepherd who is essentially contracted, which is more or less what's going on here with Jacob, the typical wage would have been 10 to 20% of the entire flock and then a percentage of the milk and the wool that it would have come from that flock. And here, Jacob, he's not asking for any milk. He's not asking for any wool. And the percentage that he's asking for is, is likely much less than what would have been typical of those wages. And so you have to consider this and you go, either Jacob is the world's worst negotiator or something else is going on. And I think something else is going on because when you look at verse 33, he's inviting accountability for his work. He's like, give me them so that there's a tangible measure. There's a tangible metric by which we can look at this. And so I think what we see in Jacob is he's inviting both generosity and honesty. And loved ones, here's what you got to understand. That when you understand that God is the source of all blessing, you, you don't have to try to hoard and acquire. You don't have to cut corners. You don't have to be stingy. Because you know God can provide in whatever capacity, whatever He wants and wherever He wants. So you're free to be generous and honest in all of your dealings. Right? It frees us in incredible ways. I think that's what we're seeing with Jacob here. And so the question in front of all of us, it really, it's a twofold question, and it's this. Are you generous and are you honest? And if we, in hearing that, if you're like, well, before you even start backpedaling, let me just have you consider 
that your issue likely isn't the, the issue of generosity, and it's likely not the issue of honesty. Likely what's going on in the root of your heart is that you fail, you are failing to believe and to trust that God is going to make provision for you. Now, it might be manifested as greed, it might be manifested as dishonesty, or whatever it is, but likely what's going on in the root of your heart is you don't fail, uh, you, you fail to believe that God is actually going to meet your needs and provide for you, right? Because when we understand that God is the source of all blessing. When we identify his hand in all blessing, it frees us to respond with generosity and honesty to God's blessing. Which then, right, it seems like, man, this is going so well, but we have two cheaters in our text, uh, and Laban uh, is going to go full-scale Laban here. Uh, And that's what we see in verse 34. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said, and then acts entirely opposite of what he says. Verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and he put them in charge of his sons. And he said a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob, right? He steals. He's like, all right, set them apart, gives them to his son, poof, gone. It's like the ancient version of of having funds stolen and now it's in some offshore account. You're never going to see him again. They're gone. Right, they're gone. And yet, look at what it says at the end of verse 36. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Even though he's been cheated, he, he continues his, his responsibility and his role. And that leads to this really, uh, what can be confusing, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around, uh, this, this scene in verses 37 to 43. And here's what I think is happening in verses 37 to 43. It's that God's initiation is going to deliver God's blessing. God's initiation is going to deliver God's blessing. And so essentially what happens, let me just summarize here. Um, Jacob then is responsible for the rest of the flock, and he does this, this, this odd thing where he takes um, sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he's carving into them these stripes. And so the bark uh, would reveal uh, what's different than on the exterior. And so you'd have these multicolored sticks. And as uh, the the sheep and the goats, as they come uh, to breed at the trough, when the stronger ones come, he would put those sticks in front of them. When the weaker ones would come, he would withhold them. And you're like, what in the world is going on? But here's the conclusion in verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So you look at this, you're like, man, what? What in the world is going on and what are we to make of this? And let me just give you a few possible interpretations of how we should be looking at what's happening here in this passage. The first is that this may be some kind of superstition or folklore. That, that, that this ancient way of thinking was uh, that when animals breeded, if they saw something that was multicolored, they would produce something that's multicolored. We kind of chuckle and laugh at that, but, but it could have been some kind of superstitious thought, and that's what's going on here. Ironically, a second option is on the opposite end of the spectrum, in that this may have actually been a highly scientific uh, activity that Jacob had undertaken. Because what we know is that with careful observation, breeders would be capable of understanding how certain traits uh, in an animal would produce certain variations in their appearance. In fact, there's, there's data that suggests a, a certain activity level would, would indicate certain recessive genes that could be passed off and be revealed. Um, and so for us, right, we're like, how could they possibly know this? Well, we're, 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 we're 
barely acquainted with any kind of animal husbandry or anything of that nature. This was their livelihood, right? They were around it all the time, and so they would have had an intimate knowledge of this, and so it's possible that's what's going on here. Uh, And there is a third option uh, that is actually provided to us in the passage itself. Let me have you jump ahead to Genesis 31. I'm going to start in verse 8. And here, Jacob is speaking to Rachel and Leah as they're plotting their departure from Haran back to Canaan. And he says this, starting in verse 8, he says, If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock were striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. And so based on the text, it's possible that what Jacob is actually doing here, this is actually a faith-filled response to this dream where God came and told him what to do. Now, Now, the tricky part of this is we don't know where in the account the dream came. Right? Did he have the dream and then he responded? Or did he first act and then he later had the dream? Right? It certainly changes how we would view this. And we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that at some point in time, it becomes clear to Jacob that God was the one who acted and God was the one who delivered the blessing. So either in spite of Jacob and his superstition or scientific um, response or through a faith-filled response. Either way, God's the one who's accomplishing this. And so church, as, as, as we look about this, and as we think about, okay, how, how do I respond? We want to be people who respond in a faith-filled way. I mean, it's very possible. Here's Jacob out in the field with the flock, has this dream, and he's like, God, you want me to do what? Like, you, you want me to put sticks in front? Like, what, what do you? It's an odd request. And yet I would just ask you to consider, does God ever give his people requests that maybe feel odd, counterintuitive, maybe a little bit outside the box at times? Does that ever happen in the Bible in our lives? Happens all the time, does it not? I mean, just think about some of the general principles we live by. God calls us to be generous instead of hoarding and acquiring for ourselves. God, God actually calls us to live for the next life, not for this one. That feels weird sometimes. Right? God calls us to be hospitable, not to isolate ourselves from other people. God calls us to serve others instead of being comforted by others. God calls us to sacrifice over ourselves. God tells us to forgive, not to seek retribution. Right? We can go on and on. God's doing this all over the place. And why is it that we do what God tells us to do? Out of faith. And so if this is a faith-filled response, right? The, the, he's simply believing God's word is what's best. And regardless of what this is, here's what we can know, is that God is the source and the initiator of blessing. And that, respond, or that, that frees us to respond in faith. And so for all of us, right, we want to respond in faith. We can be generous because we know God can always supply more, right? We want to serve because God can always bring delight and contentment in that, right? We're going to forgive because we know God is going to repay. God is the source of all blessing. Let us be people who trust him in how he provides, and let's trust God as he's moving us in whatever direction he wants for whatever purpose he has for us. God is the source of all blessing.
which then leads to what we find here at the beginning of chapter 31, the second aspect of God moving us, and it's this, that God leads us in the decisions of our lives. God leads us in the decisions of our lives. As He's moving us, He is leading us in the ways that He moves us. We see this in a few ways. First of all, this, verse 1 and 2, that God may unsettle us in order to move us. Verse 1, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. So he's being accused, wrongly I might add. Verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And so, so you've got a couple different things that are happening that, that are serving to unsettle Jacob. Right? It, it, was, it was never like he had a great relationship with Laban. There was always issues there, but, but it's definitively gotten worse Things have changed, and it's unsettling Jacob in a way that God is preparing to move him. It's actually a kindness of God in this. You ever had something like that happen? Where God unsettles you, and and then you look back in hindsight, and you're like, oh, it's because he was getting ready to move me? I I think all of us, if we think, we can can identify different times in our life. I certainly can think of a variety of instances in our life. Maybe most notable is when Becky and I were living... In Austria, we were working over there. We loved the ministry that we were a part of, loved what we got to do. In fact, I, I had told people, I was like, we're going to be here for years. Like, I, I, can't, I can't envision us leaving. I can't envision a scenario where we would leave. And then over the course of about six to eight weeks, leadership made a handful of decisions. And I finally was like, I think we have to leave, right? Where God used those decisions to unsettle us to eventually move us. Now, it's easy to look back in hindsight and go, oh, I see all that God is doing. But you don't have hindsight in the moment, right? Jacob doesn't have hindsight in the moment. And and, and so the caution for us is is don't view the events of your life in a vacuum, right? What, what, What you understand today might leave you frustrated or discouraged or disappointed. God's working a bigger plan, right? So sometimes in our limited perspective, we just have to know, I actually don't see all that God's doing. And it would have been really easy for me to point to those events in Vienna and be like, they're bad, right? Failing to see all that God was doing in a particular moment. In fact, you might, you might have certain items in your life right now that you wish you could remove, you wish would go away, you wish that the Lord will stop, and you will look back later in your life and you will thank God and you will praise God for how he used those events today that you wanted nothing to do with. God may unsettle us in order to move us. And then, man, this is an incredibly uh, incredibly comforting response from God. Look at verse 3. As Jacob's being unsettled, God gives his word when we need it. Right? As the accusation comes, the, the lack of favor is unfolding. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob. It's in that moment, right? God's speaking to him. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. See, God gives his word when we need it. See, God said what Jacob needed to hear when Jacob needed to hear it. Loved ones, are are, are you catching what this means? That God is deliberate about giving us the word that we need when we need that word. Like, have you you ever been reading your Bible and and something's going on in your life and you're like, oh man, I I, I swear I've read this a hundred times before. It was never in my Bible before. Right, but it pops at you in that moment. Why? 
because of that thing that's going on in your life. Or maybe you show up in your discipleship group and you, you have that same experience. Or even on a Sunday morning, some of you will come up and be like, that's exactly the word that I needed. And, and oftentimes you'll quote to me something I didn't even say, right? because God is using his word to accomplish his purposes. It strikes us because of where we're at in that moment. And that's what's happening here. God gives his word when we need it. Love one, God will give you his word when you need it. Now, now what I'm going to say next is, is incredibly obvious, and it probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Loved ones, this is why you and I have to be people who regularly read our Bibles. God did not write a song. God did not make a movie. God wrote a book. And if you want to hear from God, you have to open his book if you're going to hear from him. And so God help us that we would be people who would love and cherish and treasure and value God's word to us. God gives his word when we need it. Which then leads to this third aspect of God's leading. And, and really, we're, we're going to see a series of items that will inform this in verses 4 to 24. But here, here's kind of the main idea of verses 4 to 24. It's that God watches over us in moving us. That God watches over us in moving us. And so this section is going to detail the plan of Jacob uh, to leave Haran and begin his journey back to the promised land. Um, and yet, let me just state at the outset, I want you to notice the language that gets used uh, with reference and allusion to God's activity and to God's care over his people. Right? It's revealing how God is watching over them as he moves them. And again, as we think about this movement, and we said this at the outset, for him, it's a physical relocation. And maybe for some of us, it's a physical relocation. Uh, what's more likely is, is for the majority of us, it won't be physical. It might be spiritual, might be relational, might be emotional, might be professional, a host of ways that this could be applied. Uh, but what you need to know is in all of those, God is watching over us and moving us. And in fact, we see this revealed in a number of ways in these verses. Here's the first. We'll start in verse 3 with this one, that God is present with us. Right? God watches over us and that he's present with us. So at the end of verse 3, God says, I'll be with you. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Like God's been with me. God's still with me. Right? This is going to become thematic throughout the entirety of the scriptures, that God is present with his people. And here in Genesis 31, this begins Jacob's exodus. And it's in, in many ways, it's going to foreshadow Israel's exodus from Egypt. And the major similarity is this, that as Jacob is departing, and as Israel departs, God is going to be with them throughout. And that's encouraging because it's the same for you and I today, that God is present with us. You're not doing it alone, right? God's watching over us, first of all, and that he's present with us. But that's not all that God's doing. Notice in verse 6 and 7, that God preserves us. Verse 6, you know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. And so in spite of all the ways that Laban cheated Jacob, Jacob here is crediting God with preserving him. Right? He says God did not permit him to harm me. And when he says he didn't harm me, it's not that nothing bad ever happened to Jacob. We've already read multiple accounts of bad things that have happened to Jacob. What this is, is that this is a statement of not being entirely undone. Right? That he's preserved. 
This is what God does in watching over us. He preserves us, which leads into this third item in verses 8 through 13. And we've already read it, so I'm not going to reread it here. Uh, But God watches over us in that God provides for us, that God is the initiator and the source of all blessing. And part of how God uh, watches over us is He meets our needs in the same way that He's meeting the needs of Jacob and his family. In fact, I think this is a valuable and worthwhile exercise, is for each of us with some level of regularity to reflect and to recount the variety of ways by which God has been faithful and provided to you in your life. And so a number of years ago, um, actually on one of our anniversaries, Becky had just got out this huge piece of of butcher paper. We were uh, in the process of adopting Ellie at the time, and, and we just needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness, and we needed to be reminded of God's provision. So she's got this huge piece of butcher paper and a couple of Sharpies. She says, we're just going to write out all the different ways that God has been faithful. And I remember thinking at first, like, yeah, we ain't going to fill this thing up. And then about three quarters of the way through, I'm thinking, there's not enough paper. Like, like we, we, we can't possibly put down all that God has done. See, it's humbling to see all that God has done, but it's also inspiring, right, to be reminded of all the ways that God has provided, not only for his people in a generic sense, but for you and I specifically, right, in our own personal lives. Love one, are you trusting God for his provision? God watches over us in that he provides for us, but that's not all. It's like a bad, it's actually like a really good infomercial, actually, right, but, that, but wait, there's more, right, verse 13 I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. And then Rachel and Leah begin to, to talk with Jacob. Here's the conclusion that they get to at the end of verse 16. They say this, now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Another way that God watches over us is that God directs us. It's told in verse 13, go back to the land. In verse 16, the wives are saying, whatever God said, you should do it. Okay, don't miss this. It is the Word of God that directs the people of God. Did you hear that? Loved ones, it's the Word of God that directs the people of God. So the question for you is, how is God's Word directing your life? Maybe is God's Word directing your life? Is it informing your decisions? Is it shaping your convictions? Is it informing how you order your day? Does it dictate how you spend your time, how you use your money, what you're going to do with your life? Is God's word directing how you live? Because it should be. God directs us. Which then leads, all these things that God is doing, now here is our response. Here's where you and I are called to act. In fact, that's what we see in verses 17 to 21 is that God calls us to act. See, for all the action, or for for all that we've seen from God, action is required. So look at what it says. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, so he'd gone out right, to, to, to gather all the wool. So he's, he's away from the camp. And essentially, uh, Jacob and his family are stealing away in this moment. He'd gone to shear his sheep. And then you get this line here at the end of verse 19. So dumb. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. It's like, what are you doing? And we'll come back to that in a moment. But it's, oh, 
head scratching. Verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. See, action is required. God had given his commands in verse 3, return to the land. In verse 13, return to the land. In verse 16, why was saying, do whatever God said. But those commands have to be acted upon. Right? There's, something has to give. And, and so, so regardless of how you view whether Jacob should have stuck around and talked to Laban, whether he should have let him know or not, see, the larger issue of what's unfolding here is that the people of God are required to act on the commands of God. That, loved ones, when God tells us to do something, you and I are immediately at an intersection where we are either going to do what God has commanded of us or we are going to defy what God has commanded of us. And so ask yourself, is there any place in your life where you're failing to act? Any place where God has called you to something and you are failing to act? Because any failure to respond to God's command is a form of disobedience. That's the nicest way I can say it. God calls us to act. Let us be people who respond to the commands of God. Now, let me have us jump back up to verse 19 here for a moment. Rachel, on their way out, steals her father's household gods. Like, what, what is she thinking? Like, what, what, what is she doing in this moment, right? She, she pockets the idol in their departure. We're not told why. We're not told the motivation. We, we, we don't know why she's doing this. It could be to spite her father. Um, it could be that she didn't fully trust the Lord, want a little extra protection along the way. We don't know her motive, but, but here's tragically what we're at the front end of that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures is this is one of the first instances that will foreshadow the people of God and their struggle to not give their heart over to idols. And it will run from this moment, really, till the end of the Bible. Moses will rebuke Israel, the nation of Israel, for worshiping Egyptian gods. So on the front end of the Exodus, Moses is rebuking them for worshiping Egyptian gods. You get to Ezekiel, one of the last prophets, and he's going to lament that the people of God did not stop worshiping foreign gods. Uh, and yet, it's not just an Old Testament thing, because this is a problem that persists even to today. And so you look at Rachel, and you go, what, what is she thinking? And I think the question that's fair to ask is, let's also look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what are we thinking? Because Rachel knows the Lord. And if you're here today and you know the Lord, this is the same for you and I as well. So why would you take an idol? Like, what is she doing? And what this seems to be is what we would refer to as a, just another example of, of God plus or Jesus plus. I have the Lord, but I'm going to grab this other thing for whatever reason. For extra protection, because I also love it because I, I, I want it to help me, whatever the motivation, and they're all lame, it's some version of God plus or Jesus plus. We have a Savior who's given us all that we could possibly want, and yet we do, we do the Jesus plus, Jesus plus family, Jesus plus politics, Jesus plus work, Jesus plus money, Jesus plus sex, Jesus plus power, right? On and on we could go. 
We're actually no different. So as dumb as Rachel is, we do the same thing far too often. We too will pocket idols. So here's a question, loved one. Have you pocketed idols? Are you living in a Jesus plus mentality? How would I know? Are you fully satisfied and content in him? In fact, let me ask it this way. If God took everything else that you had and left you only with Jesus, would you still be okay? There's your answer. That's how you'll know whether or not you're living with a Jesus plus mentality. God calls us to act. And then finally this. I love this this next scene here. That God protects us. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, verse 23, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Can you see him over days? I'm sure seething in anger and how dare he leave and what am I going to do when I get to him? And as he's approaching, right, close on his heels, probably going to overtake him the next day. Look at verse 24. I love this. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, and I'm sure this was not the soft, cozy, comforting voice of God. I'm sure it was firm and stern. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You better be careful. Laban, you better be careful. Be careful what you say, either good or bad. See, God protects us. He's warning Laban, you be careful. It's a protective move of God, reminding us of the shelter and the refuge and the protection of God to us. Now, earlier in the service, we both read from and sang parts of Romans 8. And I want you to think about Romans 8, 31 here for just a moment. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. If God is for you, who even cares who lines up opposite you? They're getting smoked. Like, that's the whole point. Right? He's not like, if God is for you, who? Like, they, they, it's just they're wiped out. It's a protective nature. It's the protective act of God. This is what we find in the gospel, that God is for us. And maybe one of the most notable ways by which we see this is, is how we're sealed in Jesus. See, other ones, when you, when you come to faith in Jesus, you're sealed in him. Now, that does not mean that you and I are immune from threat and harm and sickness or, or even death. Uh, believers get sick and die as well. Right? So it's not that everything works out just fine for us. What it is to be sealed is that you, you're untouchable to the enemy, that he can't get to you. See, the blood of Jesus seals and it atones for the people of God. And the protection of God here reflects the greater and fuller protection of God in sealing us from the judgment and the wrath that we deserve in our sin. Praise God for his protection. And in all these things, God is watching over us and moving us. Which leads then to this final scene, this confrontation between Jacob and Laban in verses 25 to 55. Now I'm going to summarize a, a large portion of this. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't already. Um, but, but under this idea of God cares for us in our relationship, just notice what unfolds. So in verse 25, Laban overtakes Jacob. Here's what he says in verse 26 and 27. What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Not even close to what happened, by the way. Uh, this guy has a way of spinning a tale. 
Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, listen to this, this is rich, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. That party was never coming, right? That was never coming. This guy's such a liar. And what's crazy, he's playing the victim. He's like, oh, woe is me. And then you get this veiled threat from him in verse 29. He says, it's in my power to do you harm. Oh, one other note, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. You actually have no power, Laban. God controls all of this. I don't even know why you would attempt to threaten him. But then he poses this question in verse 30 to Jacob. He says, but why did you steal my gods? And of course, we know some things. We know that Rachel has the gods. Jacob has no knowledge of the gods. He's like, I don't have your gods which then leads to this escalating confrontation whereby Laban goes in and they start searching through the tents. I mean, it's like you can just see like pillows flying and everything flying around trying to find uh, the gods. Of course, they're not going to find them. In verse 35, Rachel says, uh, hey, sorry, dad, the way of women is upon me, so I'm not going to stand, all the while concealing the gods, which then leads Jacob when, of course, they don't find them Right now, now he sees another false accusation and the 20 years of anger and frustration and mistreatment, it just boils over. And he lays in to Laban, starting in verse 36. And I know we're not supposed to like this, but man, I love verse 36 to 42. You're like, finally, right? It says that he became angry and berated Laban. And he talks about how he bore the loss and he didn't enjoy any of the good. And when it was hot, he was in the, working in the heat of the day. It was cold. He was out there in the cold of night. But notice his conclusion in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He's like, man, if you could have found a way, you would have taken everything from me. But, notice what he says next. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. And so in, in a stunning turn of events, in verse 44, Laban proposes a covenant between the two of them. And, and the terms of the covenant are essentially summarized in verse 49 and 50. He says, The Lord watched between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And then this reminder in verse 43 that God is going to judge between them. They then share a covenant meal. Laban returns home. Jacob goes on his way. Now, in this, right, God cares for us in our relationships. Let me give us just a couple things to consider and reflect upon. First of all, this, that God watches over our relationships. Do you know that, loved ones? God watches over all of our relationships. In verse 24, Laban is warned. 29, he admits to being warned. Verse 42, Jacob is like, yeah, God rebuked you. That's what was going on. See, God watches over our relationships. Laban is a cheat, and he's a scoundrel, and he's crooked. He's exploited Jacob. He's taken advantage of his own daughters, but he's thwarted because, because of God's oversight, right? because God watches over our relationships. So the question for all of us is, do I trust that God's watching over my relationships? Do I trust God's going to intervene when necessary? And notice as you consider that, that God didn't shield Jacob from all the wrongs of Laban. Right? It wasn't like nothing bad happened to him. A number of bad things had happened to him. And so God watching over doesn't mean nothing bad will come our way. What it means is that God sees, that God witnesses, and God intervenes 
on our behalf, and that God will, in His perfect righteousness and justice, judge those who've mistreated us. And of course, it's true the other way as well, right? That you and I will also be held responsible, that God watches over our relationships. But then the second item, when we look at this passage, that maybe will feel counterintuitive or surprising to you, and yet here it is in the text, and it's this, that God will release us from some relationships, that God will release you from some relationships. See, this ends a 20-year tumultuous relationship, and to our knowledge, these two never see each other again, but they both go to their death never seeing one another ever again. And I believe there's some, some helpful input on how we think about relationships that the Lord may be releasing us from. And so, so my, my interest in these next couple of items is not helping us to discern when the Lord might be releasing us from relationships. My interest is how you and I are to conduct ourselves if, in fact, that is the case. So I'll give a few principles briefly. If you find yourself going, hey, Mike, I need more than that, feel free to come grab me. Happy to talk further with you about this, because these obviously in our lives can be a very complex situations. But here's three principles around releasing us from relationships. First of all, when we look at this, that we endeavor to leave in peace. We endeavor to leave the relationship in peace. So in spite of the malice, in spite of the mistreatment, in spite of the exploitation, that they don't end in bitterness and resentment. They actually end in peace. That's how it concludes Loved ones, you and I cannot fix, we cannot mend every relationship. And so if we need to leave, the goal and the desire and the endeavor is to leave in peace. Paul tells us in Romans 12, so long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so regardless of the state of the relationship, that we should do all that we can to ensure that we're endeavoring to leave in peace. Secondly, that as we look at this, that, that we remember, right, that we can trust God as our witness. You can trust God as your witness. Now, the fascinating thing about this covenant, this covenant was made because neither of them trust each other. And certainly on Jacob's part, with good measure, Laban has proven to be entirely nefarious in his dealings. And maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you know the feeling of what it is to not be able to trust someone that you're in relationship with. And so here's what you need to know that we're seeing here in God's word is that you can trust that God knows. God knows what's true. God's known what, God knows what has happened. God sees what is going on and that God will in the appropriate time and the appropriate place make whatever needs to be known, known. So you don't have to fight. You don't have to clamor. You don't have to do the PR thing with the people around you. You can trust the Lord to handle it. You can trust God because he is a faithful witness and he sees it all. And then thirdly, that we evaluate where we've been wrong. I think all of us, it'd take about three seconds if I were to say, name a Laban in your life. And yet I wonder in other churches, or maybe even in this church, would someone else say your name? Right? Where, it's not so much about like us being able to identify, oh, here's all the cheats and scoundrels and snakes in my life. No, no, what we have to evaluate where have I been wrong? Where have I been a Laban in someone else's life? And then again, right, Romans 12 is, is instructive. So long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Where do I need to go and work to be restored and to be made right? God cares for us in our relationships. Love when he is watching over you. 
And God will move his people to fulfill his promise and accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, in ways and times where it can be sharp, where it can be direct, and yet, God, it's needed, it's necessary. It is for our good. So, Father, we pray that we would receive it. God, that we would embrace it. And, uh, God, that we would respond rightly to it. Father, would you give us trust in your moving of us? God, would you help us to follow where you're leading us? God, would you remind us for your care over us? And that we would be men and women who proceed in faith, following our great and glorious God in all that you have for us. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.